You're listening to the Silicon Valley Podcast. On today's show, we have Dr. Jonathan Rechetel, who is a multiple award-winning technology leader whose 30-year career has spanned both the private and public sectors. In 2017, he was named a top 100 chief information officer in the world. In 2013, he was recognized as one of the 25 doers, dreamers, and drivers in government in America. His innovative work has been recognized by the White House. And on today's episode, we talked to him about what a smart city is. Could cities be hacked and held for ransom? With new technology, what new laws will be developed or needed to be implemented? How will design in cities in the future change? And where are the opportunities for startups in the cities of tomorrow? This and much, much more on today's episode of Silicon Valley. Welcome to the Silicon Valley Podcast with your host, Sean Flynn, who interviews famous entrepreneurs, venture capitalists, and leaders in tech. Learn their secrets and see tomorrow's world today. Jonathan, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. Now, Jonathan, can you please give us a definition of what a smart city is and a bit about your background and your career up to this point? Sure. Thanks, John. It's great to be here. Glad you're doing this. You know, there isn't any single definition for smart city, but I've been thinking about this, as you know, probably for close on 10 years now. I got some ideas. The first thing is you have to realize that every city in many ways is distinctive. You know, it has its own challenges, also has its own, you know, things that are positive. Every city is geographically different, different population sizes, different cultures. And so, there's not a one size fits all that makes it hard. So really for me, you know, I'll give two kind of different ways to think about it. One is that a smart city is really a response to its needs. And it's about using tech to achieve those needs and find creative solutions. But the broader definition that you can use more universally, and it's kind of taken from the smart cities council definition, which is basically using technology to improve sustainability livability, and workability. Not necessarily in that order, but those are the three kind of core areas. And then a little bit about my career, I guess, uh, real quick. I, um, I'm a tech guy, so it's appropriate that I'm here in Silicon Valley. You know, it took me a while to get here, but I guess I'm in the right place now. I wrote software when I was about 12 years old. I wrote my first software program and got paid for it, which is kind of cool. But yeah, I, I um, worked in Ireland for a few years. That's where I was born. I'm an immigrant to the U.S., Came to the U.S., uh, worked for Coopers and Librand, was part of the big eight at the time. Now it's the big four. So eventually it became PricewaterhouseCoopers. And the job I had just before I left, which is like one of the coolest jobs I've ever had, was the uh, director of technology innovation for the firm, which is amazing. Like, it's like playing and every two weeks you get paid. You know, it's so cool. Uh, later on, after a few other jobs in increasingly senior roles in IT, you know, became the CIO of O'Reilly Media working with Tim O'Reilly. And then I was, um, I got a very interesting call one day to, to see if I'd consider moving to Palo Alto to be their CIO and CTO. And I wasn't thinking about government or cities, but uh, I was convinced and I'm really, really happy I did it. I spent seven years there, had an amazing time. We did some interesting things, created some best practices for cities all around the world. We shared what went well. We shared what didn't go so well. And you know, that was helpful, I guess, uh, to many, many cities. I got a real love for it. I fell in love with cities. I fell in love with this idea of how can we have more inclusiveness? How can we make things function better? 
And so I was there for seven years and then I left last December. And in January of this year, I started my own little company called Human Future. And it's uh, it's really an education company, I think. So I'm still trying to figure it out. But if I think about all the time myself and my colleagues are working, uh, what we're doing, we're doing a lot of creation of content around sort of future trends and the future of the world. We're doing a lot of teaching, workshops. Myself, I'm a professor at several universities now. So there's my story. What's some vocabulary people at home need to know to understand smart cities before we really dive in this conversation? Well, if you're new to this topic, smart cities can often seem like a weird name because does that mean you were dumb before you were smart? You know, uh, not at all, not at all. It doesn't have that insinuation at all. Really, what we're talking about is thinking differently. You know, cities are, they can be a hundred years old or thousands of years old. And they've evolved over time. And if you kind of look at them right now as a point in time, they're in the state they're in because of, you know, a variety of tradition and choices. And so we have to take what we have today and say, is the way that we do things the optimum way? And so that's really what it means by being smart or smarter, maybe is a better term. There's lots of other terms people use for describing the future of cities. One term perhaps is urbanization. And I say that from the perspective of, you know, our future belongs to cities. We're moving into cities at an amazing rate. About 3 million people per week move into cities. Bill Gates has an amazing statistic. He says that every month for the next 30 years, we will create infrastructure equivalent to New York City in the world. That's a lot of refrigerators, by the way. You know, it's a lot of, you know, new flat screen TVs. And so, you know, urbanization is a key word. Then there's urban innovation is ideas, you know, creating value in an urban or city context. I think that's another key term that I might refer to. We're going to talk probably, and if we don't, it's worth mentioning now, um, there's kind of two sides to at least two ways of thinking about a city and the technology that enables it. One is digitalization, right? So that's taking a lot of the traditional old analog processes, stuff done on paper, which all of us experience and probably most of us hate, putting it online, putting it onto your computer and your web browser, putting it on as an app on your smartphone so that people have a much better experience when they're dealing with government services. So that's digitalization. But the other side now, which is really getting a lot of momentum, is you know, modernization in the infrastructure. So this is things like, well, it could be anything from new forms of transport, so supporting things like e-scooters and um, you know, self-driving vehicles. But then you get into things like sensors, so you can count traffic. And by the way, you know, if you don't work for government or city, counting traffic seems like, well, so what? Turns out to be really important. <laughs> you, know, you have to be able to count traffic accurately. And now with sensors at intersections, counting traffic 24 hours a day accurately is really valuable. You need that information because you want to do things like understand infrastructure needs, reduce accidents, you know, make sure that the timing of the traffic signals are correct all sorts of applications. So there's that element to that, thinking about a city through the lens of physical infrastructure. What types of technology are already being implemented in cities? It's a growing space. And by the way, it's a remarkably ripe opportunity for investment. I mean, it really is. You haven't typically seen urban tech or sometimes called gov tech, there's another term, be sort of the most uh, visible areas of investment, healthcare and fintech and all sorts of other domains. 
GovTech's been a bit, little bit sort of away from the center and it's changing. And one of the reasons it's changing, first of all, because so many cities in the world are engaged in this now, a new strategy to become smarter and to incorporate technologies. And the vendor community is rather narrow, actually. That might be a surprise to um, many of your listeners. You know, if you want to buy a new 911 system, and for, for you know, international listeners, that would be you know, the system when you're calling the police or an ambulance. And so if you want to buy the computer system to run that, there's not going to be a lot of vendors. It's going to be a very small group. The problem with that, you know, of course, is that you don't have as much innovation because there's less incentive. So there is this significant uptick in interest and investment. And it ranges across the board. I mean, one of the things I find so interesting about cities is how diverse they are. Let's just pick a few, right? You've got buildings. And there's a ton of tech associated with buildings, right? Transportation, right? Probably one of the most important areas right now. How can we get people from place to place safely, you know, without all the congestion? How can you find a parking space when you want one? You know, how can we reduce the carbon footprint of cars? Energy. Think about we're in the middle of an energy revolution right now, and cities are at the forefront of that. You know, we're moving from a carbon history to now a non-carbon future. Public safety. Water, networks, people want 5G and they want fiber into their home. And so in every one of these areas, and that's just a small number relative to the number of domains there are, we need new tech. We're seeing new tech. We're seeing new ideas. So we're seeing a lot more ways to automate stuff that's typically been kind of ugly and analog, you know, a lot more apps for communities to be more engaged in their democracy. We're seeing a lot more tools around data management. Think about this. In a city context, everything is scarce. There is not enough money, not enough time, too many projects, not enough talent. But there's an abundance of data. It's the one thing that cities have an abundance, right? And yet, cities haven't really fully embraced the power of that data can bring to decision-making, to building solutions, to solving problems. So there's a ton of new tech around that. And then you just have to pick one by one. And, you know, any one of that that was interesting to you, like we could talk about, you know, more details. Can you talk more about that data? And is this data just being collected here in the U.S. or is this data all over the world? Which country or cities are at the forefront? Every city collects data and stores data and creates data just by the natural act of being. Right? It just does. You know, just think of any activity if you make a, any kind of request. You know, think about libraries, the volume of data just a library creates and stores. It's a heck of a responsibility. So cities have been good at sort of using data to, in the act of actually delivering a type of service, or they have utilized it or created it in the act, but they haven't looked at secondary uses and really tried to understand patterns, correlate data, look for signals in the noise. And fundamentally, cities have to become better at using data for decision-making. By absolutely, this is not a, a US topic. Data, from the perspective of cities, is absolutely pervasive and global. And right now, the new advances for these cities, are they being developed at the request of the cities themselves, or are corporations developing something and then kind of pushing it on the cities themselves to use it? Yeah, it's an interesting one. I guess you see a bit of both. Traditionally, the function of cities has been quite well understood. You know, you've got to have a police force, you've got to run libraries, you know, you've got to have um, 
enterprise solutions for you know the city organization itself. And so a nice community of vendors has grown around this. As I said earlier in, in our conversation, you don't see as much competition or as many players trying to vie for the same business as you might in the private sector, but you see providers. Now, what's happening today is, first of all, there's a lot more uh, hacktivism. You're seeing people in the community stepping up to try to solve problems too. It's less about, you know, I pay a tax and I get a service in return. It's more of a partnership because, you know, for every dollar or every euro that you put into your community, you don't get a euro worth or dollar worth of value back. So if you want to get full value or additional value, you can choose to participate. And, and you see a lot more, not only community, city partnerships, you see in cities and organizations too. So at the community level, you're getting people coming up with ideas, being a lot more active. And of course, today, anyone can be a programmer if they want or you know, develop a solution. And then you see uh, interesting startups. I'm hopeful that this is going to be a real growth area in the years ahead. People who, let's say, they could come from a number of different motivations. One is you're just fed up with something and you're like, I want to solve that problem in a different way. Maybe you've already had a company, you've sold it and you're thinking about what to do next. You want to do something that's social impact. I want to solve some you know, really tough you know, city problem. You're getting a variety of these types of you know, characters that are now pushing the envelope forward. I just want to make one sort of little caveat here to all this. As a former you know, CIO and CTO, I used to get a lot of people coming to my office and pitching ideas. And many of them were amazing. And many of them are around today. And we certainly at the city of Palo Alto were interested in, in experimenting with people and collaborating. But it's very important you know, for the ones that were weaker that these people fully vet their idea, you know, that they speak to city officials and they speak to a wide variety of stakeholders. So that when they do finally, you know, put some effort in, they start to pitch an idea or they craft, you know, a little, you know, minimal viable product, it actually does solve the right problem. And it's something that can actually work. What you don't want to do is spend time and, and realize that, you know, when you get to City Hall, there's not a chance something like that would ever be purchased or unutilized. Cities in the future, what thoughts going to be put into them that's different than now, say five, 10 years down the line? for their infrastructure or how they're designed? Well, you see a new generation of leaders beginning to emerge now. You, you know, we've, we've got the beginning of the, we've been seeing this sort of brain drain now for the last decade or so and it'll continue. You've got a lot of people retiring. It's, you know, just the, the shifting of the demographics. And you have, I think you and I are probably Generation X. Uh, maybe you're younger than me, so. Right at the border. Right uh, you're right at the, the border. border. Okay, so I'm Generation X. You're, you're perhaps at the uh, border of millennial and Generation X. So, you know, we're internet natives, you know, we, you are for sure. Um, internet came fairly early in my life too, but it wasn't around for most of my life. And then you have millennials and beyond who the internet is just part of their lives. They're internet natives. And so as they enter government and city life, they're bringing a whole different mindset around how we can think about challenges and how we can use technology to solve problems. So that ought to be reflected in how cities function over the next decade or two or three and beyond. The low cost of technology obviously plays a part. For example, sensors. We're going to see the sensorization of our infrastructure. Some simple things like air quality sensors. Remember traffic counting? <laughs> or you know, managing water better, our precious resource of water, making sure that 
flows to where it needs to flow and it's clean and it's drinkable and or it's uh, available for the purpose it's uh, being made available for. Those things were difficult in the past for a variety of reasons, but one of them was just cost because things were too expensive. So now you get these cheap sensors that can hop on um, narrowband connectivity or even 3G, 4G, and eventually 5G, and you know even citywide uh, Wi-Fi and you know, connectivity specifically for Internet of Things. So that's going to enable a whole set of new technologies. You have other pressures like um, autonomous vehicles. It's been said that autonomous vehicles might be the most important and disruptive technology in cities in the first 50 years of the 21st century because it's not just about cars that drive themselves. It's about completely rethinking cities that were, have been for the last 100 years built around cars. Maybe we can start to build cities around people again. Right, instead of building around cars. Well, there's going to be lots more. It's going to be the, the impact of artificial intelligence in cities, making uh, services more accurate and, and more responsive, producing information that we haven't had access to before. Blockchain might be interesting in a city context. We're already seeing it being used for things like a real estate registry. And dare I say it, maybe quantum computing might have a role in the cities of the future, exponentially faster computing stack than classical computing today that will solve specific problems perhaps around climate change you know because we need really good mathematics um, and computational power to solve climate change so what what we see really in summary is not necessarily you know one or two phenomena you know shaping the future of our cities over the next few years we see a multitude of technologies and behaviors and phenomena all firing on all cylinders and that's why I believe, first of all, we're in beginning years of a revolution called the Fourth Industrial Revolution that changes a lot of things about how we live and, and how we work and how we play. And it's going to fundamentally change our cities in the long run. Cities that already exist, can they be updated with all this new technology, these sensors, or will the cities have to be built from scratch? If only we had the luxury of building from scratch, right? I really think that's going to be the exception. Today, there's decent handful of cities around the world being built in Egypt and uh, other countries. You see some work being done in the Middle East in particular, you know, Mazdar and over in Korea with Songdo. Even here in the US, we have at least uh, one or two potentially uh, new cities. But, but the vast majority of the cities in the world, the hundreds of thousands of cities are going to have to be re-engineered in place. I mean, there's nothing we can do about that. You know, you think about a city like Mexico, right? Mexico City. I haven't kept count, but I think it's in the 28 million people. I mean, the thing's a megacity or Shanghai. We're going to have to just retrofit it. We're going to have to modernize it. That's going to be the vast majority of what happens in the, in the century ahead. To retrofit a city, what would kind of the steps be? Would it just be put in sensors at every streetlight and at the sewers entrances or? How do you start? What's the first thing you do? Because Really, we're at the beginning of this. Most cities are not engaged yet in a smart city strategy, and they may not call it that, but that's what they're going to be doing, you know, is retrofitting it with the technologies of tomorrow, you know, rather than having to deal with older, decaying, you know, technologies. Honestly, the first thing is to decide to do this. That, that's the first thing, right? And to have a real vision. I say more than ever, you have to collaborate and work with the broadest base of stakeholders. This is not about the mayor and the city manager hatching up a plan. This is about reaching deep into the community to represent the, the views of 
every demographic and businesses and visitors and city staff and you know the region that, that the city's part of, maybe the state as is appropriate, and then you know the national goals too. So having a vision is real key. And, and again, it's going to be reflective of the need, right? So you could think of a, a small city here in Silicon Valley. We have about 40 cities in Silicon Valley. They're all about anywhere from you know, 20,000 to 80,000 people generally. We have a few outliers, but that's kind of the range. You know, there's questions about, first of all, transportation is a big one. So most communities are grappling with congestion and gridlock, things like, um, you know, finding a parking space. We're very, you know, we're, we're Northern California here in Silicon Valley. We were big on making sure that we're taking care of the environment and also the climate. And transportation is a massive factor in, in that. So, you know, the, the thing that sort of technology that you were asking about in your question, whether is it about putting sensors in first or whatever, really it's about a response to what's important. You know, if you're in Silicon Valley here and in your small city and, you know, congestion's a real problem and people are having difficulty getting to work and just can't, you know, can't stand it and we're trying to, you know, reduce the amount of carbon being spewed into the environment from our cars. Well, maybe you want to provide more alternative transport, you know, a smart city is one that has choices. You have bicycles and, and e-scooters and, and public transport and um, carpooling and, and, and more incentives for people to buy electric cars and on and on. So really the right answer is what's the tech and the project and the effort that's going to best begin to solve in a very unique way the unique problems of, of each community. So I, I'm just thinking about the demand to want to live in one of these smart cities in the future, do you think that would increase the homeowner's prices or what will be the difference between living in a smart city and a legacy city? It's, a, it's an interesting question. I think maybe one of the ways I think about that question is you know, short-term versus long-term. For example, today, if you are a startup, actually you could say any organization, you want very fast connectivity, you might choose a community that has fiber to every building has exceptionally fast internet, that's going to, yes, that's going to increase the value of homes and, and make the city more attractive. You could also say that cities that are well-served um, have a higher quality of life and attract more people. And <laughs> San Francisco is one of the most expensive places in the United States. It has a mix of great culture, you know, reasonable infrastructure, lots of jobs, and you know, a whole mix of things that where each of them is supportive of each other. In the absence of one, you might not get the benefits of the other. And so that makes it very attractive. But also, we have a lot of challenges too, no doubt. We do have too many people vying for the same property and it's increasing prices to astronomical levels. But more core to your question, will smart cities you know, attract more people and increase the value of homes? I mean, the, the answer in the long term is most cities will be trending this way. It sort of normalizes it a little bit. You know, it's, in the short term, you have cities that will be outliers and do amazing things and be more and more attractive. Uh, and then over time, more communities will have a variety of transport options. They'll have better tools for their community for anything from starting a business to having energy efficient buildings, um, having good strategies for mitigating climate change. That's how I kind of think about it, dividing it between the short and long term. What will the energy infrastructure look like for these cities? I think we're heading towards a solar future, primarily. I think solar will be the dominant form of power in the long term. Now, there may be some energy surprises. 
I hope there are. We continue to experiment with um, you know, fusion and other innovative things using bacteria and other waste materials and stuff to generate energy. But you know, that sun that comes up every day generates an enormous amount of power. And if we can leverage it well at the right cost, we really have you know, unlimited clean energy for the future. Getting the right mix today and even in the next 10, 20 years is, is still going to be complicated. We're not going to be in a carbonless world anytime soon. You could imagine sort of the energy portfolio being made up of everything, right? A little bit of oil, a little bit of gas, lots of solar, maybe some wind, some geothermal, some wave action, you know? And the mix will be dependent on the geography of the place, the investments that are made, and then the point in time. So some communities will be faster, some will take uh, longer. But there's some real aggressive goals around this, becoming um, effectively majority carbon. There's some great goals in, in Europe and here in many cities in the US and China now have really committed to a solar future as well. And even the Middle East, uh, you know, unintuitively where, where oil comes from in abundance, they realize that the future is, is not going to be carbon. It's actually quite a good news story if we can get it right. You know, if we can get the cost down, if we can master battery technology, because that's the missing link very much is when there isn't abundant sunshine, um, we need to be able to store and we need low cost, a safe a battery technologies for our home and for our cars and for our factories. But I, I believe based on what I'm seeing is that we're, we're headed in that direction. And of the many challenges we have in the future, this could be a good news story. With smart cities, what new laws have to be created or what needs to be changed right now to implement some of this technology? Well, you know, with technology, it's not lost probably in you and I and a lot of the listeners that today technology is moving faster than law can keep up with. It used to be that when something new emerged, it took decades. You know, you, know, you think about for 50 million people to have used a telephone, it took 50 years. We had time to put in place, you know, regulations and figure it all out. On the other hand, when WeChat came out, it took barely one year to reach 50 million people and then quickly was adopted by almost a billion people after that. Well, WeChat, for everyone listening, is the kind of the Facebook app of China. You can do everything on without leaving the app. It's pretty incredible. It is incredible. You think about on-demand transport, think Uber or Grab, as they say in South, as they have in Southeast Asia, Cabify, as they have in Spain. There's different flavors in different countries. You know, that came so fast that cities scrambled and, and actually some cities rejected it. But now they've had some time, they're processing it. We had, you know, from one day to the next, scooters arrived in San Francisco and it was mayhem. We didn't have any of the rules for how you manage thousands of people on scooters with all the traffic we have here, all the motorized vehicles. And it's already dangerous. You know, you put in a few thousand of those on the road. So it's a long way of saying, Tech is going to be ahead of regulation here going forward. There's no question. Unless the legal world has some very creative solutions, um, I do think it's going to be an interesting, interesting to see how we address these challenges of tech being way ahead of the regulations. I mean, you look at social media, it's unregulated. Billions of people using this powerful, powerful platforms, and still no regulation exists. So we're going to figure out what the rules are. The one thing that really jumps out to me in this question, because you know, we could go step by step through magnitude of things, but that wouldn't be a good use of time. I think the regulation that we have to really come to terms with around the world is going to be privacy. How do we manage 
information in an era of, first of all, abundance of data and excessive information on you and I. What's the right mix? So we don't stifle innovation, but we also do decide what the right level of protection is. By the way, associated with that, I just want to throw out this other thought. We have to decide who owns data too. I say it because it's related to the whole privacy thing, but it's today, you know, when you create a post on your favorite social media platform, you create it for free, you get no compensation. If somebody else uses it, it makes money with it. And then information about you is monetized and used to target you and others. And yet you get no compensation from it, no benefit, you know, no monetary benefit for having value in that. So I think this will be a topic that we'll, we'll, need, we'll need to sort out in the years ahead. If technology is going to be ahead of regulations, does that mean the corporations in the future are going to be more and more in charge of cities or will the local government still have control? <laughs> well, corporations do have a lot of power. That's for sure. This is a, a space that's evolving. I don't know that I'm expert enough to say you know, where things might trend in the future. There, there is a propensity for less government, more corporate power in the United States. But that's our, our system. And we're even, I think, a little bit uncertain and challenged by that notion too. But if you go to other countries, it'll be quite the opposite, right? Where government is all powerful and everyone else, not so much. It, it is a culture by culture, country by country type question. It does seem like technology done right can be very empowering. It does already give people more power. I mean, think about the voice you have today versus 15 years ago. I mean, I think of Twitter, right? That any one of us, even a podcast, right? Like this, how a podcast can, with the simplest equipment, you can record something and an hour later, you can distribute it all over the world. That's empowering. That's powerful. That's really powerful. And I think we see the effects of this. I mean, we saw the effects on elections when people have voices, sometimes saying stuff that's accurate, but also saying stuff that's fake, something we also have to manage. Certainly, I could say this question of where power will lie in the years ahead is probably one of the most fascinating things that we're going to have to figure out. I'm curious to ask you what your opinion of crimes will be in these smart cities, because you'd mentioned if there's sensors everywhere, everything's being monitored, you can't really get away with doing anything. So what will crime be like? You know, you think of crime, you think of somebody breaking into a jewelry shop and stashing the diamonds and bracelets in a bag and then running. Increasingly, crime is done over the internet now. It's sort of like it's not visible and it's hard to trace. Our credit card information gets stolen frequently. It's then posted on the dark web and sold to nefarious actors. So, you know, that, that, that physical crime part is one thing, but I think we're going to see an awful lot more crime committed online, which is a needs a whole different set of tools. There's no doubt, for example, that, uh, let's go back to the city infrastructure for a second, that the use of lighting in communities has reduced crime. For example, you know, if you low-cost lighting placed in strategic areas, even lighting that goes on when there's human movement in places where you wouldn't expect to have humans at a certain time, this has reduced crime. You can say that all the cameras that are in the environment I'm not sure that they've ultimately reduced crime, but they've certainly helped solve crimes. And of course, I acknowledge this is a big debate, right? Are we comfortable with cameras everywhere in the public domain? I think we need to debate that and 
come up with what's right for each culture. The reality is, as societies become more developed, people become more educated, there's more gainful employment, crime does go down. You know, we, we have seen remarkably here in the US, in particular in our big cities, most of our big cities, the crime has, has really gone down a lot. And we see this in a lot of cities around the world, big cities. It could be quite unintuitive where people have opportunity and good education. And perhaps there's, we can imagine a time where there's more equality and inclusiveness, less divisions in society, less inequality, you know, the opposite. We see much less of that. That crime in of itself becomes less. The only crime that I do, I guess, really worry about increasing over time is crime derived from issues that people have with their, with their governments. They want, to, they want to express their anger and frustration by doing criminal activities all the way up to terrorism. That could be something we have to live with for a long time, and that, that does concern me. As does here in the US, our concern about how do we manage all the guns. Good news story generally, but also, you know, some, I think, an open-mindedness about some really difficult problems to still solve as well. You had mentioned cybercrime. Would it be possible in the future to take a city hostage? I believe I remember reading a news article not too long ago about one city, I think it was the hospital, that the power was taken captive and they had to pay a certain ransom in Bitcoin. Do you think that occurrence could happen more and more in the future? I do, unfortunately. I do think that a hyper-connected, software-driven data world has far greater numbers of vectors, entry points into creating havoc, (laughs) creating problems. And that coupled with many organizations not doing enough to protect themselves, a lot of government agencies not making the appropriate investments, not making it a priority, that's a little bit of a cocktail for potential set of disasters. And we've seen it already. I mean, definitely to your example, but we've seen cities become hostage here in the US and around the world to ransomware attacks. And so the frequency and potency of cybercrimes conducted against communities and city infrastructure have only the potential to get worse. Now, this all depends on our, on the good guy side. How much investment do we make? How quickly does the technology evolve? Making it a priority, I think, is absolutely essential. But um, there's a couple of different ways to think about the future too. So we, we have some credible new defensive cyber technologies emerging around artificial intelligence. We also have the promise of potentially uh, quantum networks um, or unbreakable networks. You know, So quantum done right to create a new uh, quantum cryptography that is used to exchange data could potentially be, I always hesitate in saying totally unbreakable because I've been in this industry too long, but it seems like to break quantum cryptography, you have to break the rules of physics, which isn't possible. I'm crossing my fingers about the positive nature of that. But that's a little ways out, but it does suggest that, first of all, the future is never a a straight line. And we think things will turn out, often surprise us, because you have inflection points and you have disruptions and new tech emerges and new phenomena emerges that we we couldn't possibly um, anticipate. Is there anything else that you've seen recently that really fascinates you or any startup technology or service that you find really interesting that you'd like to talk about? Quantum, I think, is going to be very compelling in the years ahead. I've heard more than one person say that's in a position of knowledge in this area that we are within a few years of a multi-trillion dollar refresh of the entire world's computing stack. 
Can you talk a little bit about quantum computing and what that is, just to give a background? Hard to do in, in just a few moments, but I'll, I'll try my best. Classical computing, the computing that we all use, you're probably using to listen to this podcast, is you know, based on effectively the flow of electricity. You know, you're taking, you have a circuit and your electricity flows in one direction or another, creates ones and zeros, which ultimately is the instructions for computers to work. And it serves us really well, serviced us really, really well. Those little pathways that we need for processing to take place, we now put millions of those on little chips. In fact, some chips have billions of these little things. But we're kind of coming to the end of the potential growth spurt. It'll, the speed increases from classical computing is going to slow down now in the years ahead because we just can't get smaller. At the same time, there is a completely different type of science. It started to kind of emerge at the end of the so 19th century, heading into the 20th century, an area of physics called um, quantum mechanics or quantum physics. And it deals with the nature of uh, motion and energy at the very smallest level. I'm talking about the particle and subatomic level. Things get really weird when you get that small. Nature behaves in, in unusual ways. As the decades went on through the 20th century, smart people, including Albert Einstein and Richard Feynman and David Deutsch and others, they, uh, they started to discover some of the, many, of the, many of the properties, even though they were really unusual and, by the way, still to this day, uh, highly difficult to explain. In fact, many areas we can't explain. We started realizing that there was ways we could tap into it and sort of maybe uh, take advantage of the phenomena of, of quantum mechanics. One of those areas was to be a computational model and a computational theory of information. By manipulating these subatomic particles in a certain way, you can arrive at bits, ones and zeros, much more rapidly than you can with classical computing. In fact, we anticipate ultimately it'll be millions of times faster. The, um, the Google quantum supremacy experiment that was conducted in October of 2019, quantum qu computation solved what would take uh, thousands of years with a classical computing computer was done in, in uh, seconds on a quantum. So it just gives you an idea of the accelerated computational power. Jonathan, we're going to have to follow up on that and get you back on the show to talk about quantum computing, hopefully right before your book comes out. Is there anything else you'd like our listeners to know before we wrap this up? I think um, there's two opportunities if people are inspired by the, you know, the future of cities. One is that it's an area of growth, right? So e even in a, in a world where we're all concerned about the future of work, we're very much concerned about automation and AI and what that means to our value as humans, there's going to be a lot of opportunity to reinvent our cities and be part of that reinvention. That's a growth area. And of course, it'll be complemented by automation and by robots and AI and all the things that are emerging now. But we don't have enough really smart people thinking big, and we don't have enough talent in really key areas like data science, cybersecurity. So it's a growth area. I think that's the first thing. If, if you like cities and want to get involved, there's never been a better time. I think the second thing is for investment. I think that the vendor community is not as broad and as innovative as, as it can be and is in different sectors of the economy. We need a lot more participants. We need a lot more startups, a lot. We're talking about hundreds of domains here, and we're talking about hundreds of thousands of cities with remarkably difficult challenges to solve. And so I think you know, if you're an investor, 
you know, gov tech or urban tech is is a growth area. It's still not the simplest place to play to see returns and to to make your business explode, but it's it's starting to happen and and it's got huge opportunity. But you know what? You can you can invest in cities and startups that serve cities because you can make some money, but you can also do it because it'll change the world. And there's a enormously positive social impact to that too. You get to do both, you know, make a bit of money and do something that's really valuable and right. And and that's why I like the the space so much is I don't have to choose, right? I don't have to choose between making money for shareholders and, you know, making the world a better place to, to live in. So, you know, when you work on urban tech problems, what you're really doing is working on quality of life. And I think that's worth something. Jonathan, what is the best way for people to find out more about you or get in touch with you? I'm very accessible with social media today. I always think of something like this, the thing what you and I are doing today as the beginning of a conversation, not the end of one. So I'm, I'm a big fan of Twitter. Um, so you can get me at Reichenthal, you know, at R-E-I-C-H-E-N-T-A-L. I'm sure you'll put it on the notes on the podcast. And the LinkedIn, I'm very active on LinkedIn. So just find Jonathan Reichenthal on LinkedIn. And you can send me a message there. You can, you can follow me or connect with me. I think you'll find me very responsive. I would uh, love to hear from people with ideas. I'd also love to hear from a wide range of stakeholders for input into my new book on smart cities, as well as um, ideas that I can share with, with cities around the world as I travel and, and talk to mayors and city managers and city administrators uh, in every corner of this planet. So we'll have all that information on Jonathan in the show notes. And I also want to thank Wendy Shue, who was the one that introduced me to Jonathan originally on a trip about two years ago to Guiyang. Uh, I met Jonathan as, along with Alan, who was on an earlier episode of Silicon Valley. So once again, Jonathan, thank you for taking the time today to be on Silicon Valley. And we look forward to having you back on the show when your next book comes out. Thank you so much. This was great. Thank you for listening to the Silicon Valley podcast. To access our resources, visit us at the siliconvalleypodcast.com and follow our host on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn at Sean Flynn SV. This show is for entertainment purposes only and is licensed by the Investors Podcast Network. Before making any decisions, consult a professional.